Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England zone, Van Helsink. With me, believe it or not, we have two Steves, so there's no waiting. Uh, my co-host, all the way from across the pond, Mr. Steve and Parsons. The gold standard in ghost hunting. Let me get that in there so I can... Uh... Well, I was going to say, I'm from the land of the free. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Why are you from Texas? No, we've 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 rid ourselves of the shackles of bureaucracy and killed my four hundred one k at the same time. Yeah, listen, listen, listen. You may fret about the stock market now because the pound and the dollar have. Yeah. We'll be getting fi- Come November, the Brits will be getting five dollars to the pound, which is terrible. Well, not for us, because right. once once you have to decide between Hillary and Trump. We're going, to, we're going to get lots of dollars. I won't be able to be, go over there this year. If you come over now, you can. Yeah, whatever. Anyways, we have a show to do. So uh, joining us yeah. now is uh, someone uh, that I'm really intrigued to speak to because I've been listening to his uh, videos on YouTube. And uh, he's got some interesting thoughts. And he's a wicked smart guy, which really helps as well. Uh, he is uh, from the United States, which makes him even smarter. Uh, he is Dr. Stephen Browdy. That's your cue. Oh, I'm here. Hello. <laughs> I, was, I was so scared by your intro that I've been uh, yeah, I know it does that. shocked into insignificance. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. And, and by the way, you, you must uh, have heard of the show before because you're the only person I know that actually sent a how to pronounce their name because... <laughs> Undoubtedly, I've always mispronounced everyone's name who has ever come on the show. No, I'm just used to it. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, Doctor, uh, do you want Doctor? Do you want Stephen? Uh, what would you like? Well, if you insist on using a title, I prefer Your Lordship, but uh, oh. I prefer Steve. Yeah, Steve is good. I actually uh, have a Lordship title. Uh, I do have a oh, uh, parcel of a foot you've given, and a half. you've given him the in, the in there, Stephen. Yeah, yeah, I have. <laughs> Sorry I, about that. I do own titled land in in the UK, although it may only be a few feet. Uh, it does make me a lord, so you can make. Whereabouts? Call. Whereabouts in the UK is it, Ron? I don't know. It's in Chelmsford. Oh, so it's, so it's not in Scotland, which is otherwise you'd still be European. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyways, so um, as as I mentioned uh, before, I've been watching your videos uh, on the uh, YouTube which is, you know, it's a great way to get your, yourself out there. And the, my first question for you is, is, would you tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you got involved in all this to start with? Because that's always intrigues me. Well, I'm a retired emeritus professor of philosophy from the University of Maryland. Um, I got interested in the paranormal more or less indirectly when I was back in graduate school writing a dissertation on temporal logic and the philosophy of time. I had in those days I had 
no knowledge about the paranormal. I had no interest in it. I fancied myself to be a kind of hard-nosed materialist, not for any particularly good reason. It was just a kind of intellectual conceit I was cultivating in those <laughs> days. And it was a slow day in Northampton, Massachusetts, and uh, a couple friends came over. We'd seen the only movie in town, and they suggested we play a game they call Table Up. What they meant was, let's have a seance. And oh, cool. none of us knew anything about that, but in any case, for the, my friends had done this before, and they said it was fun when it worked. So for the next three hours, in my house, with my table, in broad daylight, I watched my table tilt up and down in the air and spell out answers in response to questions. Now, there's no way I can describe this so that I can uh, silence all skeptical doubts about this, but I can tell you that um, it was my table, it was broad daylight, this went on for a long time, I could in inspect the phenomenon while it was happening, we'd be standing next to the table and the table would be rising under our fingers, we were not using our legs, my friends were not practical jokers, I'm not even sure they had a sense of humor. <laughs> and so that made an impression on me, but I was too busy trying to kickstart a legitimate mainstream career in philosophy. And so I knew my mentors wouldn't be able to deal with any of this. So I literally put it out of mind until I finished my PhD, got a job and got tenure. And then with the freedom that ostensibly produces, uh, I remembered what happened to me back in graduate school. And I figured if I was an honest academic, I really needed to come to grips with what I'd seen. And um, I knew some famous philosophers had taken the research in parapsychology seriously, and I read what they had to say, and I decided there really was something worth sinking my teeth into. And then I started cranking out books on the subject. So uh, that's how it really got started. So when you went into uh, parapsychology or investigating the paranormal, did you do it with a, uh, and, and I, I guess we all do it in some manner, with, with some type of beliefs going in, uh, or disbeliefs going in? The only belief I had when I started out was that if there was good evidence, it was going to come from the laboratory, from more or less conventional scientific uh, exploration of the phenomena. Um, so my first book, ESP and Psychokinesis, dealt primarily with the laboratory evidence and some of its philosophical implications. But I knew that other things, like my table rising, had also been reported more or less spontaneously and to some extent experimentally. And so I started reading up on the evidence for physical mediumship, and it completely knocked me on my ass. I mean, I had no idea how good the material was, and suddenly I realized that the experimental stuff was really much less significant, much less interesting, and much less convincing than the best evidence for large-scale PK. And... That pretty much turned me around on all of that. So when I started doing actual case investigations, I was chasing after large-scale PK. I, I tried to do some poltergeist investigations, but this won't come as a surprise to you, but the philosophy department at the University of Maryland was not budgeted for paranormal investigations. <laughs> so I really had to uh, depend either on grants or on my own pocket. And, you know, in poltergeist cases, the phenomena don't always uh, cooperate. And so you spend a lot of time just sitting around waiting for something to happen. And I couldn't afford that. So I really started looking for people who could more or less produce the phenomena on demand. And those are the cases that I've been pursuing ever since. So pretty much physical mediumship. Uh, well, 
Uh-oh. The, the case of the gold leaf lady, I wouldn't call physical mediumship. That was my best case in many ways. And yeah. this is a woman. And I do want to get into that. Uh, I, I will get into that. Well, I'll just say that I wouldn't call that physical mediumship, but it is yeah. spontaneous macro PK. Okay. So, Stephen, can I can I just ask because you, you said something interesting before that you you concentrate. Everything you. he says is interesting. That's why I got him on the show. I'm telling you. I'll hand it back to you then, Ron. <laughs> no, no, go carry on. Oh, are you sure? You're not going to yeah, interrupt please, me again? Please, please, please. Trust okay. me. Trust me. I can be uninteresting too. <laughs> it was just that you're, you said at the start uh, that you had concentrated primarily in the labs and then you moved out. Now, this was I mean, the Rhine uh, philosophy was, was yes. very against spontaneous case studies in any form. However, mm. his wife, Louisa, was very supportive and collected many, many accounts of um, spontaneous cases. Have you found that, that uh, there's a problem with control um, outside of the laboratory that... You know, I've always been banging on for years that we have to try and get something from these uncontrolled environments. Do you find that when you try to present evidence from these uncontrolled situations that it's harder to get your colleagues to accept? Well, it is hard, but it's because of an unstated and I think false presupposition of people who have a problem with that, and that is that we can, can do, we can do controlled experiments in the lab. I mean, there is no such thing as a controlled parapsychology experiment. You can't do a double-blind experiment, for example, because the only forms of information acquisition you can be blind to are normal ones, not paranormal ones. You can't be you can't control for uh, unwanted ESP, and you certainly can't control for unwanted PK. It's not as if we can go around the environment with a PK meter and see where the lines of force are. So for all we know, I mean, you know, let me put it this way. Most experimental parapsychologists are assuming that everybody involved in a parapsychology experiment is going to adhere to a kind of idiotic gentleman's agreement where everybody's going to be very well behaved and only the official subject will use only the psychic ability being tested for and only when the experimenter's gun goes off, you know, right at the appointed time and that nobody else even remotely connected with the experiment will use whatever psychic abilities they might have for whatever interest they might have to mess up the experimental waters. And that's crazy. You can't do a controlled experiment in parapsychology. You can only have the illusion of control. And the possibility of experimenter psi in particular is the most noxious form of uh, unwanted psi influence of all. And so when you're outside the lab, um, you still can't have an adequately controlled experiment or a fully controlled experiment, but at least in many cases, and I think with large-scale PK, you can have good reasons for identifying someone as a presumptive PKer. You don't get that luxury in uh, micro-PK experiments in the lab. Do you find one of the greatest mediums, Eileen Garrett, who questioned her own abilities many, many times and set up indeed, set up the PA, the, uh, the PF, sorry, to... Uh, examine her and her abilities she said right from the off that she didn't think it was the dead trying to communicate with the living what are your thoughts on the survival question well that's a tough one um and i wrote a book on the subject called i was just going to say that (laughs) immortal remains and the reason i wrote the book was to try to get clear on that I, i figured after i mean i don't know why other people write books i write books to find out what my views are because only when i've worked through the 
arguments and the issues in sufficient detail do I have any confidence in what I think, actually. Um, and at the end of it all, I still wasn't sure. Um, I think Eileen Garrett was very wise in her uh, concerns about this because the the main counter hypothesis to uh, the survival hypothesis is what I think we should call the living agent psi hypothesis, and that is that um, living people are actually manifesting. Uh, various forms of psychic abilities that simulate evidence for survival for their own reasons. And if you start digging below the surface of some of the more interesting cases, you can find reasons why it might be in the interest of the living to simulate the evidence for survival. In fact, I think the the question we should be asking when we look at potential survival cases is whose interests would be served by the appearance of this evidence? the dead or the living, and whose interests are the most urgent. And yet we have so many um, accounts, including from Garrett herself, where the evidence does seem to strongly suggest some aspect of survival, of, co- of uh, some elements of consciousness, as the least. But a, I agree. What, what I find also interesting is, is a lot of your forebears who have come into this uh, initially sceptical psychologists, philosophers, classicists, when they've taken, you know, the time to study the phenomena firsthand, um, the number that have converted to, I was going to say, the belief, uh, the belief side, uh, and have come out strongly in favour of something considerably uh, worth investigating. Yes, the, if you're actually looking at the material firsthand, it has a kind of emotional grip to it, and I don't doubt that for one moment. Um, but if we really want to ask, is there compelling scientific evidence for survival rather than living agent psi, I think we have to be a little more dispassionate in our assessment of it and then consider uh, the various pros and cons, and that's where it becomes a little more difficult. At the end of Immortal Remains, I came out very mildly in favor of survival, but the argument for that is pretty convoluted, and I don't think we can uh, go through it right here. No, but we, I mean, as I say, we do have you know, notable um, researchers, Bernard Carr, Archie Roy, who have come out strongly in favor of the survival um, camp. Did Bernard do that? I wasn't aware of that. Well, I haven't talked to Bernard several times. I, I, I've always strongly thought he was a survivalist. Archie Roy, for sure. Archie, Archie for certain. And a, and a great teller of some very blue jokes. Uh, that went over well. Oh, I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't hear it on my headphones. Oh, Try that I'm one. Saying, Arch, Archie oh. was also notable for his um, great range in blue jokes. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, okay. You learn something so, every day. So enough of this name dropping. Let's get back to the, <laughs> sorry. Let's get back to the, the, the meat of the matter. And uh, of course, I'm extremely interested in physical mediumship uh, because this is something that's been reported uh, for hundreds of years, and it intrigues me in that some of the reports, of course, are uh, for people who can make uh, personal gain of it, but others. Uh, for instance, you talked about your own in, in your uh, table-tipping uh, exercise where you, I, I, you're not calling that physical mediumship. I apologize, but I, I do believe that's what it's it okay. was. Yeah. I, I do believe it, that's what it was It's in, in my definition of the, the term. Uh, whether you know it or not, you may actually have been a physical mediumship at 
the time that happened. Do you mean um, by that? Cha- do you mean by that channeling a uh, discarnate entity, or just doing it myself? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, if in that case you you have to uh, have proof that you are doing it yourself, or you are channeling, then you can't do that. I really no, don't no. believe you can. It, it, however, it shouldn't be discounted, though. No, I'm not uh, discounting it. Right, because, I mean, the problem with a lot of uh, parapsychologists today is that they will look at some of this uh, physical mediumship and they will discount it, uh, you know, for instance, uh, dowsing and uh, other methods as auto... Oh, Steve, help me out with this term, auto... uh, No, I'm not going to help you. You bastard. (laughs) (laughs) But what what you really want to say is idiomotor effect. Thank you very much. <laughs> but where, where that, even, even given that, it, where the information comes from is more intriguing to me. It, it, that's what I am trying to comprehend. And I, get, I get it. I, look, I would say that in cases of physical mediumship, there's virtually nothing that compels us to accept the idea that it's a discarnate entity working through the table or, or whatever. Uh, there's very little actual verifiable evidence of survival from physical mediumship. Um, I mean, there have been cases such as that of D.D. Hume where he produced materialized hands that some people said resembled the hands and their deformations, the hands of the deceased. But I think we have to uh, be careful about the uh, the testimony in those cases. It could be a, a little bit of um, bias misperception in those cases. But what we do know is that the, the objects move. They, the, the weird things happen. My my guess is that physical mediumship is mostly about living agent psi. But uh, I think we still have to keep the door open to other possibilities. I mean, we do have we do face some really challenging cases. I mean, just going back to Eileen Garrett again, particularly with the things like the R101 case. Um, back in the 1930s when they got the communications that were still at that time, in fact, didn't come out for some years later um, to be known, to be uh, discovered to have been secret. And it really does sh- strike one as being somewhat inconceivable that the information could be uh, supplied from a living agent at that time. You've got to be careful. When you look at some of the more spectacular... Um remote viewings of from the U.S. government-supported programs, uh, the amount of information obtained precognitively and in real time uh, with the barest of cues, you know, like geographical coordinates presented as binary numbers. Um, I think we need to be very circumspect about how uh, super our more or less humdrum uh, ESP can be. That's interesting thought in itself. So that we may have more, more power than we know. Actually, I don't think we have a clue how what the limits of our psychic abilities are. It's one of the reasons I wrote a book called "The Limits of Influence." I mean, <clears throat> you know, you can't judge these things from laboratory experiments. And in a way, I even think laboratory experiments are almost absurdly premature. You know, there are certain human capacities we can study in the lab, and that's because we have some idea how they function in real life. I mean, we can study memory in the lab. It's not usually done very well, 
but we can take it into the lab and study memory because we have some understanding of how memory works or the ways in which it works at least in real life situations it has a natural history that we're acquainted with but we don't know what the natural history of our psychic abilities are so we don't know whether it's as ridiculous to bring it into the lab as it would be to try to study athletic abilities in the lab or a person's inability to maintain good relationships or compassion or sexuality in the lab there are many human capacities that can only be studied in real life situations and if you bring them into the lab you're only studying straight-jacketed forms of those capacities could psi be a physical force um, such as for example gravity I, I the example i'm giving is that gravity is something that, that physicists don't really understand they can measure its effects on known bodies like planets and people and spaceships and so it's acting in a predictable way but if if there is another force akin to gravity and let's give this force the name psi for example that's acting on an unpredictable agent the human consciousness the human mind the effects would always be unpredictable and yet the force would be a, a uniform a uniform force well there are respects in which psi behaves in force-like ways. I mean, you know, back around the turn of the 20th century, in the late 19th century, some experiments with mediums, uh, physical mediums, showed that their weight increased by the amount of force needed to raise uh, a levitated table. And interestingly enough, um, we've been getting exactly the same results currently with a, uh, a subject in Argentina. So... Those are things that suggest that um, PK, at least, uh, respects uh, some of, at least some of the laws of physics, or doesn't at least uh, immediately suggest that there's a problem. What about the the uh, materialization of objects? Well, that's a problem. <laughs> uh, no one really knows what to say about that. Um, Do we I mean, just ignore it, or is it? No, I don't think we should ignore it. Do we need more research into it? Well, I'd love to see more research into it. It's hard to find good materializers. I mean, sometimes some of the best evidence for materialization comes from poltergeist cases. There are some great Australian cases, for example, in which there are good eyewitness accounts of stones or rocks materializing right under the ceiling of a room and then raining down on the people inside. Um, and that's actually been reported, that kind of thing has been reported for centuries. Uh, not only the raining of stones, but the raining of excrement inside a house, which is right. one of the weirder things about poltergeist cases. But there are so many mundane cases that happen every day that we, we tend to ignore. For instance, uh, you know, when I first got involved in paranormal investigate, one of the signs of a haunting, of course, was the uh, disappearance or reappearance of objects. And, and that's reported constantly, but it's just always uh, dismissed as forgetful uh, Forgetfulness. Sure. So, I mean, here we have a perhaps is an everyday occurrence, and yet it's totally ignored. And yet, it, you know, there's no way to gather information on it. It's not easy to study. I mean, that could be a so-called apport, where something disappears from one exactly. location and reappears somewhere else. Now, is that materialization? Some would say yes, because they think of apportation as being like a, a Star Trek transporter, where you break down an object into its micro-level constituents and then reassemble them or rematerialize the object in another location. Mm -hmm. 
And maybe that's what was happening in the Gold Leaf Lady case, but maybe that was just the materialization where something is produced de novo. And there are plenty of examples of that sort of thing, where um, Dede Hume's materialized hands would be an example of that. These were hands that were warm, mobile, flesh-like, um, but they ended at the wrist. They could carry objects around the room. People could shake hands with them. They could actually poke holes in the hands. The holes would then fill up, and then the hands would dissolve in the people's grasp. So these were not stuffed gloves that Hume later retrieved. Right. These were interesting things that seemed to be produced de novo and were not transported from anywhere. Yeah, you know, in terms of sorry, Ron, I was going to say I don't right, think in terms of physics that there is necessarily so much of a problem uh, for object materialization or indeed objects passing through others because you know, matter has a vibrational frequency uh, like a radio wave and and that physicists are already looking at teleporter type yeah, devices. The reason is why, not so much how, but why well, does well, it happen? Well, the why, the why is something they don't understand, but they are. They, it doesn't break the laws of physics as we still understand them. Um, I mean, for objects to pass through other objects. I mean, I mean, we we talk about we've talked in the show before, before about that particular uh, object that happened to me, which was uh, I'm the chairman of the uh, Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, and um, we do haunted tours to raise money for the lighthouse. And one day we were uh, doing a haunted tours. The end of the night, we were in the lighthouse. We were collecting our wonderful EMF meters and uh, dowsing rods. And everybody was handing them to me. And I took them and I was putting them on a table. And then someone handed me a flashlight, which was uh, the twin of the flashlight I had. When I came to there, I had two flashlights. I took one with me, left one in my car outside the gate of the place. And the flashlight was handed to me by someone there. And yet, I asked who handed me the flashlight. Nobody said anything. I asked who, uh, did anybody see me hand a flashlight? No. But Jeremy, who was coming down the stairs, actually did see that. So it, we actually saw it. And the interesting thing about it is it was a very extremely cold night. And yet the, the flashlight was warm. So here we had a, an object, and, and there was no reason for it to appear, but yet it did. The fact that it was warm strikes me as interesting because apported objects, especially medium to large size objects, are often reported as being quite warm, sometimes too hot to touch. Yeah, I, I, I saw that on your, uh, your uh, YouTube thing. Oh, we're almost up to the break now, aren't we, guys? I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, I found that interesting. I did not. I wasn't aware of that. Like, likewise, we can't also ignore the fact that people, you know, we, we, we do know from, from our own experiences and from evidence that people are, you know, the human being, the human witness is frail sometimes. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And that they can presume that they left it in the car or that they placed an object in a certain place. They, in fact, they can distinctly remember that. And I, I've had experiences where I've argued with somebody who absolutely categorically remembered yeah, we, we discussed it on the space. show before and you had the camera that caught him actually yeah so you know we have to, yep. we have to allow for that that human element too yeah absolutely so anyways we are coming up to the break right now and uh, i just realized you guys look alike that's scary <laughs> you mean in our baldness <laughs> yeah well in the glasses and the whole beardy thing going well anyways <laughs> we have to take a break right now uh, thank you so much for uh being with us and uh my pleasure Hopefully you'll hold on, and we can talk about the uh, the uh, your book, the gold uh, thing. Leaf lady. Yeah. yeah. 
So anyways, uh, you're listening to Ghost Chronicles uh, International with Steve Parsons and Ron Kolick, and our special guest is Dr. Stephen Browdy, and we'll be right back after the following messages right here on Tojinet, Pararex, Planet Paranormal, Astronet Radio, and wherever the hell else, maybe the Ghost Box, who knows? We'll be back. Tune in every Monday at 11 a.m. for another episode of Ghost Chronicles Morning Edition with New England's own Van Helsing, Ron Kolick, and his inquisitive travel companion, Lou Blassie, the professor. Hey, that's me. Each week, we'll delve into the realm of the supernatural where all that is is not what it appears to be. With remarkable guests, spirited conversation, and the occasional voice of the deceased, we'll bring you a whole new meaning to the term dead air. Ghost Chronicles, Mondays at 11 on Eagle Radio 1110. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place an oasis in this hectic world. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly kooky, the Parax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parax family. They're strange. Unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew. It's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Parax family. I was just listening to Ron's heart. Welcome back into part two of Ghost Chronicles International with our special guest, Dr. Stephen Browdy. Um, philosopher, parapsychologist, um, jazz musician, jazz musician, all round good guy. Don't forget that. Why? Because he looks like you. <laughs> Never be a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, uh, you know, Stephen, you operate in a world where uh, of parapsychologists um, who. I have never yet met a parapsychologist who cannot that explain. <laughs> yeah, who who cannot explain every phenomena that is presented to them for explanation. Um, oh, well, then I'm an exception because I can't explain any of it. Yeah, because parapsychologists seem to be um, unique in the, the way that uh, you, know, you present them with a phenomena. They can present you with an explanation. How, is that not frustrating for you? Uh, I mean, Yeah, it is. It's as if people think, mad. It's as if people think theorizing is as easy as lying. You know, I actually think theorizing is very difficult to do. Um, 
The only kind of explanations I've ever been comfortable giving are psychodynamic explanations about why the phenomena take the form that they do. I mean, I'm still at the stage where I'm trying to understand the natural history of Psy and how it fits into our day-to-day lives, if it does at all. I mean, you know, there's no reason to think that Psy phenomena occur only for parapsychologists and only when they set out to look for it. If it if they occur at all, and I certainly believe they do, then presumably they're occurring sometimes when we're not trying consciously to uh, do anything psychic. And that's where we need to really start looking for its stage of operation, you know, maybe in the lives of people who are unusually lucky or unlucky, for example. Um, And I'm not, believe it or not, I'm really not trying to get you to discuss the case of the gold leaf lady, but there was... I do want to discuss it, I really do. But there there was... a case there of we didn't know whether we were dealing with a materialization phenomenon or an apportation phenomenon, and I have no way of settling that. But what I could do is offer some, I think, reasonable conjectures about why this woman's body was breaking out spontaneously and instantaneously in a golden-colored foil. And I think until we start looking at those kinds of explanations, we'll never get a grip on why or how psi functions in day-to-day life. Okay, so since you brought it up, why don't we jump right into the that uh, the case of the golden lady? First of all, you know, explain explain what it is, and then sure. we'll get into it. Yeah. All right. This has to do with a woman in Florida whose first name is Katie. Um, she's a good all-round psychic, but none of her psychic abilities emerged until she married her current husband or second husband. And by all accounts, it's a difficult relationship, possibly even abusive. And Katie can do a number of things. I mean, she's worked with the police to solve crimes. Uh, Even though she's functionally illiterate and has only a first-grade education, when she's in a mediumistic trance, she writes out quatrains in medieval French and Latin from Nostradamus, which I think is pretty cool. It Uh, is pretty cool. (laughs) And the other thing is that her body breaks out uncontrollably and spontaneously and instantaneously in this golden-colored foil. Now, the foil is actually brass. It looks like it comes out of her body, but it really doesn't. I mean, she'd have to have lethal amounts of copper and zinc in her system to produce the quantities that we've seen. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, besides, it sometimes appears on her clothing and ostensibly in sealed containers around the room. So she's not sweating it, as it sometimes appears. Um, But why brass foil? Well, here's my conjecture. What we know is that when Katie's psychic phenomena started to happen in her marriage, it started first as poltergeist-like occurrences. So things were moving around the house or appearing and disappearing. And one day, a carving set appeared out of nowhere. And Katie's husband said to her, well, what good is it if it isn't money? And then two days later, Katie's body started to break out in this golden-colored foil. So if you want my half-assed pop psychological analysis of this, it would be that symbolically the golden-colored foil satisfies Katie's husband's demand for something valuable, but Katie doesn't really have to bear the psychological burden of being the goose that laid the golden egg. And I think that's pretty serious burden, you know, over and above the burden of being able to produce PK. And not only that, because I think Katie feels trapped in her marriage, it's one way of expressing her considerable rage against her husband. He wanted something valuable, and she's giving him brass. She's giving him fool's gold. So she's giving him the psychic finger. 
<laughs> reading the reading the Golden Leaf Lady reminded me so much of many um, religious uh, miracles and attributions towards religious miracles, the production of stigmata and, and right. the like, because there is also in many of the accounts the 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 saint or the martyr was also you know tortured. I don't necessarily mean physically, although that did take place, but but by their circumstances, you know, they, they were in a constant state of mental or or indeed physical torture and torment. Do you think that 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 extreme situation plays some part in the in the production of these side events? I've often wondered that. In, in Katie's case, it was hard to determine because the appearance of the f- foil didn't correspond neatly to difficulties in her life. Sometimes it would appear during what seemed to be quiet times in her life, and other times nothing would happen during more or less traumatic periods. But interestingly enough, Katie would have stigmata-like phenomena in addition to the foil. So um, she would often get raised things on her abdomen that looked either like the shape of a butterfly or the shape of a cross. Now, that's not paranormal because we know that people, good hypnotic subjects can do that, and Katie was clearly a good dissociative subject. Um, so that's an, I would say that's an abnormal phenomenon but not a paranormal phenomenon. But there is that additional link to the stigmata phenomena. It, it I mean, struck me as a, you know, this remarkable similarity to what... what you know, had it not been in the 20th century, it, it, it was reading like um, religious miracles in many senses. Absolutely. There's no doubt that the context of these phenomena um, shapes how we look at it. I mean, in the case of uh, multiple personality, which is a relatively contemporary psychological phenomenon, the, the relative, more or less the same phenomena at a different epoch might have been regarded as demonic possession. Right. I mean, that's the problem. We look through things with our blinders on or, or our colored glasses. It's and unavoidable. It's our, own, our own personal beliefs uh, will always uh, give us the conclusions that uh, even though we may not want them, consciously, subconsciously, uh, we get the conclusions that uh, fit our beliefs. Well, yeah, it's very. we have to try to be as aware of those cultural biases as much as possible, but you can't eliminate them. So, I mean, the... The other problem we have is, and Steve brought it up briefly, you're talk, talking about stigmatic stuff, is that we tend to generalize the cases rather than uh, examine them or even try to classify the particular ones. In other words, we pick the ones that will support this and ignore ones that don't support it. Well, yeah, that's inexcusable. I mean, I think we need to be as... Uh, synoptic as possible when we're when we're trying to theorize about what's going on we need to look at the full range of potentially relevant cases there's no excuse for not doing that Uh, i was going to say i'm going to drag the conversation in a slightly different direction which is related to um the study what if we we don't want to well okay the study the the studies that you've been working on Stephen uh, relate to mediumship and the production of psi events within uh, the seance chamber but my my main area of interest um, as you may may gather is the the investigation of people's uh, claims relating to haunting experiences Mm -hmm. Um, and this comes down to there are similarities in terms of the, the question of survival there are objects that appear and disappear there are objects that move there are noises and sounds but 
ghosts. I mean, are, are, are we chasing? Are we just chasing shadows? The problem with haunting cases is, first of all, they're they very seldom, if ever, provide good, verifiable evidence of somebody's survival. They're at best suggestive. Uh, I mean, if you want verifiable evidence, then you need to turn to mediumship or reincarnation cases or something like that, where we actually have some information apparently normally unknown to any living person, which we can then later uh, confirm or disconfirm. Um, the other problem with haunting cases, especially you know when uh, ghost hunters go into buildings and stuff with lots of fancy equipment, is that there's no way to know what's going on. I mean, it's a joke if you think the readings you get on your equipment have, can be attributed only to a discarnate entity at the location. I mean, if you grant the existence of normal living human PK, then you've got to maintain the possibility that the operators of the equipment are actually producing the uh, deflections of the needles or whatever it may be. Right. That goes back to the old saying, is the house really haunted if the human isn't there? Right. And we don't know. No. <laughs> That's the problem. Well, we, we still, I, well, the problem is much more fundamental, isn't it? Well, I mean, we don't actually know what a ghost is. We have, we have definitions that are arbitrary, but they are argued over even, you know, even to this day. Richard Phillips Yeah. But parapsychologists themselves can't, can't actually give us a definition of what a ghost is. I wasn't actually referring to the question of survival because I've, I've often said, uh, and many other ghost investigators have said, that the, the investigation of hauntings and ghosts doesn't necessarily relate to survival anyway but it, as a as a phenomena is it the, the question i was trying to get you to act to to answer is as a phenomena itself the way you wanted them to yeah is <laughs> it, well, you know we'll just have another referendum till we get the answer we want but yeah i figured <laughs> we're good at that um but uh, is it worth people wasting their time in haunted houses well, for entertainment value, I'd say it's worth something, but um, not if you're really trying to understand the nature of the paranormal. I don't think there's much to gain from that. I think it's it's interesting that there are certain locations where there are recurrent phenomena reported by different people, especially when the reports are more or less independent of one another. I mean, I think that's something that's interesting, but going in with equipment thereafter is not going to tell us very much, I don't think. No, I, 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 well, 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 you know, wait, wait, wait. Isn't that field work? Isn't that what you were talking about earlier in the show that we should do more of? I mean, even Harry Price, I mean, he perhaps that's the way to do it is, is to take a location for a year and, and uh, investigate it. Uh, or, I mean, what's your thoughts? I think a more interesting and profitable way of investigating haunted locations is uh, what's been done a number of times already. That is, you get a number of sensitives and then controls who are not sensitives to independently go into an ostensibly haunted location and have them identify the places where they experience something anomalous and then see whether they correspond, whether the sensitives are picking up something that the uh, others are not. But but that that uh, completely ignores the possibility that what you actually have is a, an environmental uh, aspect to the to the haunting, rather than a, a paranormal a, a 
to begin with. Because oh, well, that has to be investigated in addition, yeah, I, I, of course. That, that, that can only be examined. For example, if people are saying that they, they cold felt colder, that can be uh, objectively measured and determined. And we know from, from my own work, from the work of uh, Professor Persinger, uh, that electromagnetic fields, that infrasound, that you know, the real physical world can trick people and create paranormal experiences for people. Yet if we just go in armed with sensitives and mediums, we are never, because they're human too. I mean, we did some experiments with infrasound uh, where the medium was, was uh, giving us his thoughts and impressions and they correlated very strongly with the infrasound measurements and it was the medium who said at the end of the uh, the experiments well of course I'm going to put a psychic bias on it because I'm psychic but I'm also human and those those sound waves are going to affect me also I'm just putting my spin on it yeah let me be clear I didn't mean to rule out the relevance of infrasound or other um local physical uh, causes of unusual experiences. I think that has to be done no matter whether you go in with equipment thereafter to uh, try to get deflections of needles or whether you go in with sensitives. That obviously has to be a part of uh, ostensible haunting investigations. That's all right then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're completely right. But um, it's one of the reasons why if you're looking for the most profitable and useful things to be doing as a parapsychologist, I would say hauntings would not be the uh, the first thing to engage in. Yeah, we would overlook them then. Was it Lloyd Auerbach on the show that said that uh, parapsychologists should never investigate hauntings because they lack the social skills? <laughs> oh, I didn't say that. No, Lloyd Auerbach did. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, he makes good chocolate. For, good for Lloyd. <laughs> So, uh, I mean, the, the problem with using uh, mediums, and uh, this goes back to the proof of the afterlife, is that they may give you information uh, that only a person may know, but we have absolutely no way of determining where that information came from. Did it really come from a deceased person? And, and we have absolutely no way of knowing that. It's very hard. So I don't think, I don't think you can determine whether you've got good mediumistic evidence just by looking at any one particular case. Um, one of the reasons I was impressed by, say, Mrs. Piper is that she was giving this kind of intimate, uh, detailed information about deceased people um, quite consistently over virtually a quarter century. And for me, the interesting question is how, I mean, do our psychic abilities function so well that um, we can attribute that plausibly to uh, Mrs. Piper's ESP or uh, to that of the discarnate communicators. And I think the scales tilt slightly in the direction of discarnate communicators in that case. How can we, how can we measure, how can we determine these subjective accounts that we get from mediums and psychics and sensitives? Because it is, at the end of the day, the word that we have to take at face value. It's a witness, that, just like any other witness. Well, it's not just their word. They're, it's things that they say, possibly in trance. And so um, we've got them providing information in the best cases, which um, we can, I think, reliably determine that they had no normal access to. We can't rule out that they had um, 
paranormal access to that information. And in many cases, it's clear, for example, in Mrs. Leonard's book tests, that um, she was giving detailed information about the pages of books she's never seen. But these are things to which the deceased wouldn't have any privileged access to either. I mean, so it, it's, it, it's clairvoyance no matter what, whether it's deceased clairvoyance or yeah. Mrs. Leonard's clairvoyance. I say one. Of the, I mean, the, the key problem that you face when dealing with somebody who, who, with a claim sensitivity is that the information is very, very difficult often um, to, to examine and and show that it, it's high quality information. I can recall one case where that was. Uh, we could demonstrate that the medium had no access to the information because the records uh, could be accessed l- much later on. Um, and, and demonstrated that, that nobody, had, including anybody associated with the investigation, had had access to the records because the records weren't known to exist at that time. But they are, they are infinitesimally rare cases where you get that level of... Uh, oh, only on cases... Wait a minute. Study, every, sh- every day you, you, you get people that go to mediums and psychics who will tell you they've gotten good information. And yeah. yet we just discard it because they are getting paid for that information. So, well, wait a minute, I mean, guys. Wait a minute. If you, look at, if you look at the Stargate remote viewing data, and uh, more and more of it is being declassified, the level of uh, psychic accuracy in, in some of these cases with really nothing to go on to provide it um, is absolutely astonishing. And... More is coming out. Ed May is going to be producing four volumes of currently declassified uh, data from the Stargate project. Why was the Stargate project shut down then? Oh, lots of political reasons. Uh, Any time with the government, you should know that. Yeah, that's that's a very complex story, and I'm not sure I'm the most authoritative person to speak about it. It's funny you should mention it. Just over the past weekend at a joint conference of the Society for Scientific Exploration and the Parapsychological Association, I heard three or four different versions of why that happened, (laughs) depending on uh, what the people's involvement was in the military uh, program. But, but I mean, I was, I was talking specifically in terms of as a field investigator who deals with sensitives. Um, you know, we do have this. We have to try and demonstrate that the information that they're providing um, cannot be obtained by normal means, which is incredibly difficult in the 21st century with modern access to yes. information. Yes. But uh, you know, I, I, as I've said on I, I, many times, there have been a very small number of occasions where that can be demonstrated, and that really is truly challenging. Yes, um, and and should be should be considered to be extremely challenging by parapsychology, and yet they tend to wave it off, wave it aside with a brush of the hand, or or stick their head in the sand. I'd like to think that the fact that I've been arguing passionately for three or four decades now about the value of spontaneous evidence, that, um, and along with some others as well, that it's making some difference. I mean, I think more and more parapsychologists are uh, willing to take this, uh, the non-laboratory evidence seriously. But it offers its own methodological challenges. And the fact is, I think a lot of the scientists who work in parapsychology are not comfortable in doing fieldwork. I mean, it's not what they were trained to do. Uh, They're more comfortable in the lab, no matter how inappropriate the lab may be to the study of the phenomena. And I think a lot of them don't want to dirty their hands in uh, participating in these ostensibly looser kinds of uh, case investigations. 
Oh, entirely concur with that. We we made a presentation to the Society for Psychical Research several years ago uh, that basically invited them um, <laughs> at the end of a pointy stick to join us and to start examining spontaneous cases. And the the net response was uh, lots of platitudes in the bar, but nobody actually ever turned up. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. So, Stephen, I know we're running out of time on this show, and if someone was interested in uh, learning more about you, where could they do that, and where could they get your books? Well, I have a university uh, webpage, but you'd have to be a URL savant to uh, <laughs> remember what it is. I, I fortunately have a whimsical website. It's uh, jazzphilosopher.com, and there are links there to my university webpage, and on both of those sites, uh, there are links to my various books, and you can uh, go either directly to the publisher or to Amazon. Now, going back to that case, uh, the gold uh, leaf lady. Gold there. leaf lady. Yeah. yeah were you, how involved in the case were you, or did you do it? Uh, I was heavily involved in the case. Okay. I, I haven't read the book, so I do apologize for that. That's all right. Yeah. Um, uh, no, I spent a lot of time with her, and. Did you uh, actually see the gold leaf materialize? Absolutely. I would, you know, uh, like I'd sit across from her at dinner and suddenly something would be there on her face. Oh, that's... I could see that her hand hadn't gone up there ahead of time to place something there. Mm-hmm. Well, John yeah, would be jealous. He'd have a bag full of this stuff by now. Oh, yeah. I do have quite a collection, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and do you, I mean, that, that's a, a basically a field case that you yes. work on. Have yeah. you worked on other ones as well? Uh, well, the, in fact, the whole book, The Gold Leaf Lady, um, it's a collection of cases, both uh, successful and unsuccessful, that I uh, conducted uh, into Macro PK. Okay, I'll definitely have to get it then. I do, once again, I do apologize. Not- no need to apologize. Yeah. But uh, next, t- next year at this time, if you haven't read it, uh, I have mafia connections and I'll have your knees broken. You're right. And you were, you're, you're originally from Massachusetts? <laughs> I'm sorry? You were originally from Massachusetts? No, no, I'm not originally from Massachusetts. I oh, was okay. actually born in Las Vegas, but um, oh, there you go. I went to graduate school at uh, UMass Amherst. Oh, okay. I say, the, offer, the offer for Ron to read a book is nearly unique. He's never read uh, a book in the last 20 years. You mean, you, I've got a whole library. Yeah, the, but they're all propping up wonky legs on your furniture. Yeah, I know, but that's besides the point. <laughs> but anyway, uh, before we go, anything else you'd like to uh, mention? Wow, that's the toughest question you've asked me today. <laughs> wow. Okay, no, I have no. That went over well. That went over well. You were lucky there because I thought Rob was going to get you to play out players out with uh, some jazz. I, yeah, you know, I I thought of that, and <laughs> if we ever do get uh, Stephen on the show, we definitely have to get some. Uh, Clips on, well, sort of. what, what we need to do uh, to make it really, really good is to get Stephen and Annalisa Ventola um, to, to come on and to give us a duet together. Oh, that'd be fun. I just saw Annalisa this past week. I've just been up in Boulder. Yeah. Ah. Oh, here we go again. We're name what? dropping. Yeah, yeah no we're name dropping again. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, uh, going back to, and I know we only got a minute or so, but. Uh, I, I'm so, as I mentioned before, I'm so intrigued with the physical mediumship. Uh, would you, have you ever studied, like, you know, table tipping or extensively or, or any of the physical mediumship? 
I've been investigating a medium in Germany, Kaimuga, uh, since 2010. I've published two articles. I've published two articles about Kai in the Journal of Scientific Exploration. Um, it's a difficult case. I think some of his phenomena are legitimate, especially table levitations. But Kai cheats. So um, we know that there's evidence, there's conclusive evidence that he has cheated on occasion, not in uh, seances that I supervised, but uh, it complicates the situation considerably, as you can imagine. And, and that know was, what, you know, know what Joe Nichols' response to that would be. Yeah, we know what Joe Nichols' response to everything is. <laughs> Anyways, uh, that was the uh, doorbell, which pizza from the dead is here, so we have to leave. <laughs> and on that, uh, one quick question. Okay. Why do so many famous and intelligent people become enthralled with the paranormal? People like John Hammond and Thomas Edison and so many others. Well, I'd like to think it's because they're open-minded as well as smart. There you go. Made the day. All right. So uh, we have to say goodbye to you, and we have to say goodbye to our listeners. Uh, Steve, do we have a guest for next week? Uh, we do. We have a guest from the uh, Society for Psychical Research, keeping it highbrow. Oh, uh, you know that kills me because you guys all use those big words, and you know that just I can't handle it. <laughs> We're just trying to raise the tone, on. Yeah, I know, I know. But anyway, Stephen, uh, Stephen Browdy, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you. I, and I will get a copy of that uh, book of yours and. I promise, despite what Stephen Parsons says, I will read it. And if you have any questions, you know, by all means, just keep them to yourself. <laughs> yeah, Good response. Good. I'm going to read that. Can I, can I use that one? <laughs> sure. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> all right. So, uh, anyways, uh, check out Steve Parsons' website, which is what, Stephen? Uh, theghosthunter.webs.com. The ghost and you can buy my, uh, either Paracoustics or Ghostology. On if the, you have to. If you have to, you boring, must. Boring, reading, boring, so boring. Or you can get my books, Ghost Chronicles or Ghost of the Day. Great, great bathroom books. So, yeah. uh, so yeah. the free set of coloring pencils. <laughs> and the built-in Ouija board. So until next time, good night and God bless. Good night, God bless. to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.